6, verse 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace be increased? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, he will certainly also, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Thanks, Kemi, and uh, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Why don't we pray before we get started? Great God and Heavenly Father, we want to come before you this morning and thank you so much for your life-giving, spirit-filled word by which you reveal yourself to us, you reveal your son to us, uh, and Lord, we pray as we get into your word this morning that by your spirit, uh, you would impress uh, all the things that we think about deep into our hearts so that we uh, might see the glory of the risen Lord Jesus and want to live for him more and more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but Easter is just about my favourite time of year. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's the, the long weekend that you get, uh, but just particularly, it's a wonderful time of year to reflect in a deep way on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's wonderful that we get to reflect on those things as real historical events. They've been written down, recorded for us. They actually happened in space and time 2,000 years ago. The most important thing that ever happened in human history was that Jesus died and rose again to save sinners and reconcile us to God. 
The question we want to ask today is, so what? What's the significance of those events? If I trust in Jesus' death and resurrection, how does that affect my life? To answer that question, what we're going to do, we're going to look at three truths, uh, three realities that came out of the passage that Kemi just read for us. Uh, So keep your Bibles open and we'll be dipping into other parts of the Bible too. So you might have received a little sheet with some Bible verses on it on your way in. Keep that handy as well. So three truths. We'll see firstly that if we're people who have put our trust in Christ then we are, in fact, united to him. Secondly, we'll see that because we're united to Christ, that means that we're united to him in his death on the cross. And lastly, we'll see that we are united to him in his resurrection. We're going to dig into what those things mean and, importantly, how they play out in our day-to-day life. So firstly, let's think about the fact that if we're people who have put our trust in Christ, then we are united to him. So in the passage that uh, Kemi read for us, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Christians are described as people who have been baptised into Christ. It's an interesting expression. And in fact, there are dozens of instances where that phrase is used in the New Testament into Christ, in Christ, in Jesus, or in him. Uh, It it just pops up all the time. So a couple of examples, and these are on your sheet. Uh, The second part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says that it's because of him, that is God, that uh, you are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, wonderfully, the meaning of that is actually quite broad. That's because being in Christ means that we share in the vast array of spiritual blessings that come from being in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those blessings are then listed. Being in Christ means being loved by God, means being chosen by God, adopted to be one of God's children, redeemed out of slavery to sin, forgiven and washed clean, made perfectly righteous. Amazing spiritual blessings that come to us in Christ, in connection with him, in relationship with him. We receive those things because we are united to Christ by faith. So to be in Christ means to share in the blessings that come from being in Christ But more than that, and importantly for us this morning, being in Christ means that we have a whole new identity. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Or some versions say that person is a new creation. The old has gone, 
the new is here. To be in Christ is to have a new identity. It's to have yourself, your whole life, your whole being as a person tied up with and connected to Christ. And the Bible uses different illustrations to show us what that means. Christ is the head, we are his body. Christ is the vine, we are the branches. We are inseparably united to him. And in the same way that a husband and wife kind of become one, so do Christ and his people. If you've been married for a while, then you know what that's like. In a mysterious kind of way, you have so much of your identity kind of wrapped up in the person that you're married to. You don't know where you stop and where they start. You can't speak about yourself without referring to them. Have you ever noticed that? You ask a married person how they're going and they start with the word, we. Yeah, we're going okay, thanks. What did you do on the weekend? Oh, we just stayed home. Have you ever noticed that? Do you say that yourself if you're a married person? If you're married, then so often you can't speak or even think about yourself without reference to your husband or wife. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. And it's the same with a Christian and Christ. I wonder, does this describe you? If someone asks you the question, who are you? What would you say? Would you struggle to speak about yourself without referring to Jesus? Would you feel compelled to say right off the bat, I'm with him. It's in Jesus that I find my life, my identity, my meaning, my purpose. Is that how you think about yourself? It's an important question to ask because as people we tend to live out of our identity. We act according to who we reckon ourselves, think ourselves to be. So, for example, if you've got it in your head that you're an ugly, awkward, boring person, then you're not going to want to go out much. You're not going to want to go to parties. You're going to feel awkward in social situations. But if you think about yourself as attractive and glamorous and fascinating, then you'll want to go to all the parties, grace people with your presence. Your identity who you are, and importantly, who you reckon yourself to be, shapes how you live. And that should especially be the case when it comes to your identity in Christ, your union with him. Specifically, your union with him in his death. And that's the second thing we see, that being united with Christ means that we are united in his death. Look with me again at Romans chapter 6 and we'll just run through a few verses and look at how many times it talks about being united uh, with Jesus in, in his death. Paul asks, don't you know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus have been baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Again, verse 5 says we've been united with him in a death like his. And verse 6, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died to sin 
has been set free from sin. To be united with Christ in his death means that what happened to him is counted as happening to you too. Your old self, your old nature, the person that you used to be before you were a Christian, a person who was a rebel against God, a lover of sin, a slave to sin, that person has been put to death, crucified with Christ. You've died to sin. And anyone who's died to sin has been set free from sin. That doesn't mean that we'll never sin again in our lives. Obviously, that's not the case for any of us, except maybe Carl. Um, Dying to sin doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it does mean new direction. Not sinless perfection, but new direction. It means that sin and rebellion against God are no longer the defining direction or pattern of your life. You've got a new direction. You can't live in sin anymore, wallow in it, delight in it, allow it to have control over you. Through being united with Christ in his death, you've been set free. And that's how you have to think about yourself. In verse 11 and 12, Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves, think about yourselves, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Who are you? You're a person who's in Christ, united with him in his death. How should you think about yourself? As someone who's dead to sin. How does that reality shape your life it means that you don't let sin control you anymore it means that you don't offer any part of yourself to sin let's um flesh this idea out a little bit we'll we'll think about a few scenarios you're in bed at night on your own alone in your room and you feel the urge to look at pornography. What's going through your head in that moment? The devil is no doubt in your ear saying, come on, it's not that bad, everyone else does it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, God will forgive me anyway. I'm covered by grace. It's kind of like a a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's a powerful temptation. How do you fight that? Romans 6 tells you that you need to count yourself dead to sin. That's not me anymore. I died with Christ. The person that indulged in porn and lust and wallowed in those things was put to death on a cross and now I'm heading in a new direction. Now, just thinking about those things is only a starting point, really. How you think about yourself ought to affect how you act. Count yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. That's how you think 
And then Romans 6 verse 12 says, Therefore, don't offer any part of yourself to sin. If you think of yourself as someone who's dead to the sin of watching porn, then that ought to affect how you act. Leave your phone and your computer out of your room. Come out from being alone in there and spend time with other people in your family. Be radical because you've been given a radical new identity in Christ. Let's think about another scenario. Someone you live with does something to annoy you. Your husband or wife or someone in your family, your brother or sister. And it's not the first time they've done it. You've actually asked them heaps of times, don't do that. You've been polite, you've been patient, but they've done it again. And being polite hasn't worked, so now you're ready to give them a piece of your mind. They deserve to feel your wrath. You are angry. But before you kind of storm into the room and let them have it, stop and think for a second. Didn't the person who indulge their anger and fly off the handle all the time die? Isn't he or she dead? That person died on the cross with Jesus. Why try and bring them back to life? Another scenario, you go to a friend's place and they've got a new TV. In fact, their whole house is just kind of nicer than yours. You drive home and all you can think to yourself is, I need a bigger TV. I wish I had a nicer house. You start to allow yourself to feel discontentment and envy. You don't like those feelings, but you find yourself kind of going down that rabbit hole. How do you fight that? You say to yourself, Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sin of discontentment and envy, and I died with him. I'm not going to allow those things to have control over me anymore, rule in my heart. If it's a problem for you, you you don't flip through the JB Hi-Fi catalogue. You don't get on realestate.com because that just feeds that old person who was so full of discontentment and envy and jealousy and you don't want to feed that person because that person is dead. They died with Christ. You get the idea? As a Christian, you're united to Christ in his death Count yourself dead to sin. Live out of that new identity. But really that's only half the story. If the sermon ended there, it wouldn't really be good news at all. Because we're not just united to Christ in his death. We're united to him in his resurrection as well. That's the last thing we're going to look at today. There's a number of verses that speak about a Christian's union with Christ in his resurrection on your sheets there. Um, I don't think you've got Colossians 2, actually. Colossians 2, 11b to uh, 12 says, Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
And then Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Uh, The wonderful truth that we remember every Easter that Carl opened with, that Kate always used to say, that we sing songs about, is that Jesus was raised from the dead. He lives, he reigns, seated on high at the right hand of God the Father. And as we're united with him by faith, we're united with him in that resurrection. And that's something that isn't just a future thing, but it's being worked out in our life now. In the same way that our old self has been put to death, crucified on a cross, our new self is being raised to life. The old is gone, the new is here. And it's important at this point to highlight that all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who unites us with Christ so that not only do we live in Him, but Christ lives in us as well by His Spirit. Romans 8, 11 tells us, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And because of that union with Christ in His resurrection by the power of his spirit living in us, we can live a whole new life. Now that's a splendid truth. But I wonder if it strikes you as just a little bit mystical. How do we make it tangible? How do we experience the power of Jesus' resurrection? Is there something we need to do to kind of tap into the Holy Spirit's power or or does it just kind of wash over us sometimes like a, a mystical force? I think one of the key things to understanding this is to recognize that we've been united not with a power but with a person. It's to the extent that we run after Christ as a real person that we experience his resurrection power, the power of his spirit living in us, enabling us to live a new life. Philippians 3.10 says this, says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see, there's a a connection there between knowing Christ, the person, and knowing the power of his resurrection. The more you know Christ, the closer you get to him, the more you start to know his resurrection power working itself out in your life. And you get to know Christ the same way that you get to know anyone. You spend time with them, you listen to them, you talk to them, you learn about their character what sort of things they like and don't like, what they're all about. You find out those things about a person by spending time with them and listening to them and talking to them. And you listen to Jesus by picking up his word. Sometimes we see reading the Bible as a bit of a chore and sometimes true, it can be a bit dry and stodgy but I wonder if we'd be more inclined to 
get into the word, if we came with a kind of hunger, I'm hungry to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. I want to know the power of his spirit living in me, helping me to kill sin and grow in holiness and live for God and love others. I want those things. And I know the place that I can find that power is in Christ and I find Christ in his word, applied to my heart by his spirit. Trying to live that new life without the word of Christ is like trying to go into war without any weapons or going on a road trip with no fuel. You see then how there's nothing that mystical about knowing the power of Christ's resurrection. In, in one way, it's kind of ordinary. It's, it's picking up the Bible, reading it, meeting Christ in his word. But in another way, that is anything but ordinary. It's the extraordinary supernatural power of Jesus' resurrection life being given to you by his spirit through his word. It's magnificent. I wonder if you know that. I wonder if you've come away from from times in the word feeling refreshed and encouraged and equipped like you've heard from God, like he's put fuel in your tank. How else do we know Christ and the power of his resurrection? Knowing Christ looks like seeking him in prayer, trusting that he truly is a great high priest who empathizes with your weaknesses and knows your needs, who understands you and loves you. Know him to be gentle and lowly and compassionate and gracious. Someone who welcomes sinners. Come to him and ask for help, for grace, for strength. Pour out your heart to him. Speak to him openly and honestly. Do you ever do that? And do you come away from those times feeling refreshed and encouraged, like a a burden's been lifted, or just like you've got a bit of a new perspective on your problem? Or feeling like the problem that you brought to Jesus isn't huge anymore because he's huge. Again, it's not too mystical. It kind of is, but it's not too mystical because it's talking to God in prayer, experiencing the extraordinary, supernatural resurrection power of Christ working itself out in your life by his spirit. We get to know Christ by obeying him from the heart and following where he leads, even if it means hardship and suffering. Sometimes that might mean big life choices like Kate going overseas to be a missionary, but more often than not, it just means small day-to-day choices. When the daily choices come between following the way of Christ, which brings even just a small measure of suffering, or going your own way, which seems easier, you actually get to know Christ by choosing the way of Christ, choosing to follow him in self-sacrificial love, as basic as it sounds, choosing to be the one who 
gets off the couch and does the dishes or changes the nappy or makes that phone call that you don't really want to make. And not doing it just because you're a martyr, but choosing that kind of costly love because you know that's the way of Christ and you want to know Christ. And to get to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection involves following him, yes, even into suffering. And it's true that there is a kind of richness and life-giving power in that kind of life and a kind of blur in just choosing yourself all the time. It's so unsatisfying and so unfulfilling. The ordinary, basic, day-to-day choices to follow Christ lead to the extraordinary, supernatural outworking of his resurrection power in your life. But none of us can say that we get that right. In fact, we get it wrong every single day, don't we? We all fall far short of that kind of life. So what do we do when we fail and fall short? We come to Christ again, seek his face, look at what he did on the cross to pay for your sin and your failure, know that he is indeed raised from the dead, seated on high, interceding for you at the right hand of the Father in those very moments when you get it wrong. Trust in the forgiveness and grace that comes from him. Reflect on just how stupendous that is. Simply wonder at how stupendous he is, the best person in the entire universe, died for you, raised again, and you're united with him. As the hymn goes, cast your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look with the eyes of your heart to the wonderful face of Jesus and look forward to the day when you physically meet him face to face. The same spirit that raised him from the dead and who now lives in you, unites you to him, will raise up your body on that last day. And that same hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, says in a later verse, Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we'll follow him there. He'll call us someday to our home far away and his glory forever we'll share. That's the life of death and resurrection. It's a life that comes from our wonderful union with Christ by his spirit. It's a life lived out of that new identity. It's a life lived by seeking to know Christ and so know the power of his resurrection both now and for eternity. Let's pray.